All right. So, um, if you're new, my name is Eric. I'm one of the pastors here of Restored Church. And uh, over the last month, I've preached a couple of times out of Philippians 4. And this morning, I want to kind of take a look at what I think will be kind of the final look at that incredible chapter. And before I do, would you pray with me and for me um, that God would help me? Uh, Father, thank you for your word. Uh, thank you that we get to, to gather as your people to, to hear your word, to meet with you, to encounter you as a community. God, and I pray that you would meet with us. God, I, I need this message. I pray that, that I and that we would be impacted by what your word says. Because your ways are beautiful. They're good. They're wise. They leave life. And our ways are not nearly as good. We need your wisdom and your care and your mercy and your grace every day. And so I pray that you would be pleased to pour out your spirit, pour out your mercy and grace on this community. And I pray that the fruit would be just a flourishing people. Uh, a community that's alive, that loves Jesus and one another in radical ways. We love you, Father. We thank you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Okay, Uh, so some of you may know that uh, I was born on the island of Puerto Rico, and I lived there all the way through my second grade. And in August, it'll actually be 26 years since I moved to the States. And preparing for this message, I spent time thinking about what that move was actually like and the move was actually like pretty complex because my entire life, my entire world was on this tiny island and a small island, no less, where everybody knows each other, everybody seems to be related. And we picked up and left everything to start over somewhere new uh, here in Southern California where we didn't know anybody. And the first day we flew in, I immediately knew like we're not in Puerto Rico anymore. Uh, for example, like driving in Puerto Rico, uh, it is not uncommon which this is, in hindsight, is kind of crazy, but when you're there, it's not uncommon for a light to turn red and for like six, seven, eight more cars to go. Uh, Roll through the intersection, it's no big deal. People just kind of stop and weigh and it's expected. Uh, If you do that here, you're going to get T-boned or ticketed or both. Uh, That's just not a thing that people do here. Maybe you see one or two people like squeezing by, but not like that. And I was like, oh, we're not in Puerto Rico anymore. This is a, a completely different place. Uh, and living in Puerto Rico, it was totally okay to tell someone, hey, looks like you've put on a few pounds. You look healthy. That was totally normal. Here, you don't talk about someone else's weight unless you're a nutritionist or a doctor or socially unaware. <laughs> there, though, it was acceptable for moms and tias and tios and abuelas to just keep hammering you like, hey, you're going to eat? You want to eat some more? You hungry? Why don't you eat some something I just made? Like, Grandma, it's two in the morning. Nonsense. You're skin and bones. And then, of course, after a couple of weeks of being back and eating Grandma's cooking, she's like, hey, you put on some LBs? You look healthy. It's like, well, Grandma, you won't stop feeding me. Of course I'm putting on weight. It's like, that's just totally normal. And here it's like, y'all done with that plate? Hmm, I'll take it from you. Have you been working out? You look great. That's like considered polite here, just totally different. Uh, my favorite one, though, is dinner table etiquette. If you've ever, <laughs> if someone asks you for bread, what do you do here? Typically, this is what happens. You don't touch the loaf with your fingers. Instead, you use a cloth in the bread basket as a buffer to cut the bread. And then you don't actually, like, you, you don't dip the bread. You put a little butter on it, and then you eat it. And you don't actually hold the bread in one hand and then a drink in another. These are all rules that I had to learn as I moved to the States. And you never take the last piece of bread without offering it to somebody else. In Puerto Rico, if someone asks for bread at the dinner table, you break it with your hands, you dip it in butter, and you hand it to them. That's basically what we do. And then once a friend from Puerto Rico did that here in California, and the person who received it was like, ah, 
nervous scratching, like just did not know what to do. Just made them so uncomfortable. And again, this is just cultural differences. And these are relatively small differences. But there were some big ones that I had to make. For example, I had to learn to get around. We had to learn to get around. The entire country of Puerto Rico fits in the San Diego County with a thousand square miles left over, which is basically you'd fit Orange County in that space. I had to learn this vast geography of Southern California before maps, before MapQuest even. If you have anybody remembers what MapQuest was, uh, forget smartphones and, and Google Maps. Uh, we had to learn a new language, Californian. <laughs> what are you doing here, bro? <laughs> Take the 405 and get out of here. You know, like we had to learn how to communicate. There's customs, new realities like ice cold beaches. Like this is not a beach. This is there's an Arctic current running through here, literally. The, the water's from, from Alaska. It's terrible. Okay, but there was also, so, so that's not necessarily like big stuff, um, but there was stuff that was really hard. I mean, after years on a tiny island where I pretty much felt like I knew everybody or I knew someone who knew someone, uh, I had to learn what it's like to be an outsider. I had to learn what it's like to be ethnically different. I learned to build relationships with people that I had nothing in common with, no shared experiences, and no shared culture. So my point in saying all this is when I moved to the States, there was so much to learn. There was a new culture, new relationships, new language, just a new way of doing things. And at times it could be really hard. And it hit me as I was thinking about this stuff that for us who are here, who want to be disciples of Jesus, who want to follow him, enjoy him, obey him, operate like him, we encounter new things in the kingdom of God. We encounter a new culture, a new language, a new way of doing things in God's kingdom. When I say God's kingdom, I just mean his rule and reign over people. And that's a reality that means that we're going to, have, we're going to struggle at times as we transition our lives, reorient our lives around the kingdom of God, and that's okay. I discovered, like, moving to the U.S., that learning a new culture, it takes time. It takes energy, and it takes having the mindset of a student of a learner, which is what a disciple actually is. So this morning, I think we're going to look at one of the most difficult and challenging aspects, lessons that God wants to impart to us as we kind of enter into God's kingdom and enjoy life with him and embrace the new culture of his kingdom. But my hope really is that as we dive into this stuff, we're going to see the wisdom and the beauty in it, and that Jesus' ways are better than any other way that we might know. Also, if you're here and you're new and just checking out our church, I want to welcome you. And I just want to say that um, what we talk about today, I I hope, will give you some insight into the kind of community that we want to become together over time. And so I sincerely hope that you're encouraged by this message and that you'll think about it and see how it might benefit you as you navigate your way through life. So turn over with me to Philippians 4. If you have a Bible, we're going to have it up on the slide if you don't. And we're going to look at verses 10 to 17, Philippians 4. If you're new, the, this is a letter that's written by the Apostle Paul. And he is an early church leader. And he is writing this letter from prison. He's in, he's in prison for proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the king over the whole world and he's the savior of his people. So here's the thing, important to note. Back then, if you were in prison, it's not like today. Uh, you depended on whatever friends and family brought you for food and for provision to the church. So the Philippians sent Paul a gift that would have helped provide for his needs. So what we're about to read, these words are essentially kind of like Paul's thank you to this church. 
So verse 10, Philippians 4, verse 10, it says this. I rejoice in the Lord greatly because once again you renewed your care for me. You were in fact concerned about me but lacked the opportunity to show it. I don't say this out of need for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. I know both how to make do with little and I know how to make do with much, with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content whether fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need. I am able to do all things through him, through God who strengthens me. Still, you did well by partnering with me in my hardship. And you Philippians know that in the early days of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except for you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent gifts for my need several times. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the profit that is increasing to your account. the profit that's increasing to your account. This passage gives us a window into what I think is one of the absolute hardest lessons to learn in the kingdom of God. How do we suffer well as disciples of Jesus? This new way of suffering is something that we learn over time. You'll, you'll notice that Paul says he learned. I learned. I learned. So this is something we learn over time as we are immersed in the culture of God's kingdom, life under King Jesus. This is an automatic this is something that we cultivate over time. So this morning, I want to look at two things. First, I want to look at the disciples' heart in the midst of suffering, the disciples' heart, and then the disciples' hope during suffering. So we'll look first at the heart of the disciple and then the hope. And again, a disciple is just someone who's learning to follow and obey and enjoy Jesus and become like him. So let's talk about the disciples' heart in the midst of suffering. What's typically going on in your heart when life gets hard? What's typically going on in your life, in your heart, when life gets hard? And I've had a chance to reflect this week on my own life and, and read up on this topic. And I think there's typically one of two things that are going on in our hearts as, we, as life gets hard, as we suffer. I think the first one is that we either avoid pain on the one hand, seek to avoid it, or on the other hand, we hold on to it. So I think we avoid it or we hold on to it. So let's look real quick at avoiding. If you're a man and something gets in your way, something hard comes up, you may immediately go to, how do I fix this? As though we're dealing with an algebra problem, right? Are we factoring binomials? Uh, let's just reverse foil our way out of this one so we can get out of here and have lunch. Like, that's not really how it works. That's not how life works. If we just, and the thinking here is this, if we just do X, Y, and Z, then we'll find our way out of this suffering. And by the way, this kind of thinking is not limited to men. I think we're just more prone to it for whatever reason. The truth is there is no formula that we can follow to make a quick and clean escape from loss, from grief, from physical or mental illness, from hardship. And that's just one. Problem solving is just one thing that we tend to do. There's a variety of ways that we try to avoid the hard stuff of life. The ones that we probably know from everyday life are just kind of distractions, you know, um, our phones, news, entertainment, sports, shopping, social media, romance novels, porn in some cases, throwing ourselves into a hobby, getting really into fitness or getting educated. And here's the thing. A lot of those things are great things. They're not bad. But we can turn them into an escape if we're looking to avoid the hard stuff of life. So sometimes I think if we're honest, we'd say we want to avoid the hard stuff of life. On the other side of things, we want to sometimes hold on to our pain and our suffering. We want to hold on to it. So over the course of several years um, that I've been in pastoral ministry, 
I have one friend in particular that I have spent countless hours with just exploring his life, his hurts, his pains, the ways that people outside the church and inside the church have failed and hurt him. And even though he always agreed on paper that Jesus saw his pain and his suffering and was with him in and through it, my friend was never able to move on from the hurt. He kind of became like someone, the, the best way I can think of it, it's like, kind of like someone who's at the um, hospital and they finish treatment and rehab, but they don't want to leave because they're like, if I pull back, who's going to care for me? Who's going to take care of me? Who's going to notice me? And by holding on to his pain indefinitely, this friend of mine, he made a choice not to lay hold of the new life that Jesus gives, but to, let, to lay hold of his pain and not let go, which eventually became his identity. And now he's become stuck. He's kind of unable, and to some degree, if he's honest, probably unwilling to get better. And while that may sound extreme to you, like, we do similar things. We can unknowingly hold on to the hard stuff, and without even realizing it, we could become angry and bitter. That's one of the ways you know you're holding on to something. Anger, bitterness, frustration. Sometimes it'll look like exploding in anger. Other times it's going to look like withdrawing our affection. In any case, we're holding on to that hard stuff of life instead of encountering Jesus through it because he's offering to meet us in it and bring us through it. We're kind of withholding it. When we hold on to it, we're kind of holding it away from Jesus who can actually heal our pain. And it just festers. Now, if you're honest, do you tend to avoid the hard stuff of life or hold on to it? you tend to avoid it or hold on to it? And I want to ask you a question. If Jesus were here this morning and he were offering you a chance to experience his power and his sustaining grace in the midst of whatever you're experiencing, would you be open to him? Would you give him a chance? Would you say, okay, Jesus, let's walk this out. Let's talk through this. If you're open and you want to hear more about what this might look like, I have really good news for you. In this text, we hear from a master, from Paul. We learn from the best. The Apostle Paul, who learned over time, by experience, how near, how powerful, how real Jesus is through the hardest circumstances. So we're going to take a look back at our text in a minute. But before we do, I just I want to say that I think this text actually shows us kind of three realities that I think protected Paul's heart from either avoiding suffering or holding on to it. And I think we can learn right alongside Paul what it looks like to live this out and apply it to our own lives. So here's the first new reality. If you're taking notes, Paul is not looking for his circumstances to change. He's not primarily looking for his circumstances to change in his life. So imagine this. I want to help you enter into what Paul is going through. You're falsely accused of crimes that aren't crimes, and you're held indefinitely in prison. So imagine if that's you. This prison, they don't feed you. You only have what others give you. One day, a massive gift comes in, massive for you and for what you need. And then you know, like, you'll have food and water and your basic care needs met in the the foreseeable future. And then you get a chance to talk to the people who sent you that support. What do you think you would say? How do you think that conversation goes? Maybe it goes something like this. Thank you so much. You don't know what it's like in here. They don't feed me. They don't take care of me. 
It's like no one cares about me. I don't matter. I'm unimportant. This injustice that I'm living through, it's eating me alive. How could they keep me here and treat me like this? I feel so alone in here, but because of your gift, I know I won't be cold, hungry, or thirsty. And that gives me strength. Thank you. Does that seem about like a fair? Maybe some, maybe some of those things you might be prone to say. I know I would. It's perfectly understandable. Hunger and thirst, what does it do to our bodies? Weakens us. Water and food, what does it do to our bodies? Strengthens us. Totally makes sense. And yet Paul doesn't focus on his circumstantial change seemingly at all. Let's, let's listen to verses 10 to 14. Verse 10 says this, I rejoice in the Lord greatly because once again you renewed your care for me. You were in fact concerned. You cared about me, but you lacked the opportunity to show it. So there was some gap between the Philippians' care that I'm not entirely sure in terms of why there was a gap. But again, this isn't 2019. There's no Venmo. Things were a little different back then. It was a little bit harder to get money and resources from one place to another. But here's what Paul says. He says, you, you lack the opportunity. You did care. You just didn't have a chance. And now you did. I don't say this out of need. It's not because I'm hungry that I'm thanking you. It's not because I'm thirsty. I don't say this out of need. I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself in. That word content is it's a word that, that, that was used by like the Stoics. It's kind of like self-sufficient. I have learned self-sufficiency. But with Paul, there's a twist. It's not, I've learned self-sufficiency in and of myself. Listen to what he says. I know, verse 12, I know both how to make do with little and I know how to make do with a lot. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being content, content of being self-sufficient, whether I'm well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or need. And here's the key. I am able to do all things through him, God, who strengthens me. Still, you did well by partnering me in my hardship. I think he says that just to make sure that's okay. It's clear. I want to be clear. You did the right thing. But I want you also to be clear. I wasn't I don't depend on your support. I have a greater support who takes care of me. But you did right. You did the right thing. And I'm grateful. So it's kind of like he's saying, like, I'm so glad I showed you this kindness. I'm taken care of, but it's not the food that takes care of me. It's not the water. It's Jesus who's as near and as real to me as my own self in the midst of this suffering. Um, I'm a big Angels fan, if you don't know. And recently they, they lost one of their players, uh, Tyler Skaggs, who was 27 years old. And you may have seen this. I think this probably went viral, if I had to guess. But they did a tribute to him the first game back in Anaheim, which is where they play. The players did a tribute for him. They let Tyler Skaggs' mom throw out the ceremonial first pitch. She, like, fired a rocket, like a strike at home plate to home plate. And then after that, the whole night was just one incredible thing after another, one no-hit inning after another. And they, it all kind of came to a head when the Angels won that game and no-hit the other team for their fallen pitcher. They threw a no-hitter in his honor. Incredible stuff. I mean, you couldn't have scripted it. I think one of the Angels players said as much. This is like Hollywood, but it'd be unbelievable. You'd be like, oh, this is kind of lame. This isn't believable. But it's, it actually happened. And if you listen to the players' comments, there was a lot of different players saying the same thing. He's here with us. He's looking down on us. Someone out there is watching out for us. One of the angel players was like, I'm ready to rethink my agnosticism in light of what just happened here. There's divine intervention, clearly. And the only reason I bring this up is because I think many of us have similar stories. Like we, we have heard about people drawing strength from the memory of a loved one. But here's the thing. For the Apostle Paul, he's in prison. 
Uh, he's being treated unfairly. It's not like a sexy situation. It's just, it's grimy, it's dirty. There's no like viral tweets going out for, that show him and his condition. But he said, it's Jesus who's here with me, strengthening me, enabling me to suffer well. It's kind of like he's saying, like, I'm not alone in this place. Um, if you like angels in the outfield, I got an angel with me, you know? But it's Jesus, not an angel. It's Jesus, and I can face whatever comes my way. Just like it was all about Tyler Skaggs at Angel Stadium that night, for Paul, it's all about Jesus every day, every minute of every day. And because of that, Paul didn't look to his circumstances to dictate his joy. He didn't rely on the, on, on the broken things in his life getting fixed. That wasn't where he found strength. Like he found strength in the risen Jesus who was with him and strengthened him. So you see in Paul, there's no desire to avoid pain. There's also no desire to hold on to pain. There's a desire to run to Jesus and be strengthened. So think about your life today. Is your joy and strength dependent on things getting fixed in your life? On circumstances changing? If you are not sure, you can take an inventory. Every time you feel anger, frustration, or bitterness, you probably look into your circumstances. But if we learn to draw our joy and our strength from Jesus, then we can face whatever comes our way with Jesus. Do you want that? Do you want that this morning? Yeah, I do too. It's okay to answer, yeah. Just call the back and forth, call and answer, it's okay. Um, Jesus strengthened Paul in awful circumstances, and he can do that for you too. So he didn't look for circumstantial change. What was he actually looking for? If you're writing this down, Paul was looking for evidences of grace all around him. Paul was looking for evidences of grace all around him. Philippians 4, 15 to 17 says this, And you Philippians know that in the early days of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no one shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving. Um, but you, you sent for my gifts several, you sent me gifts several times. Verse 17, Not that I seek the gift, I seek the profit that increases to your account, the fruit in hard times, Paul was not holding on to his suffering, but he was looking for and holding on to any evidence of God's grace in his life and in the life of his friends and the people around him. I'm going to say that again. In the hard times, Paul wasn't holding on to his suffering or avoiding it. He was looking to and holding on to any evidence of God's grace in his life and in the life of his friends. Um, I recently received a phone call from a buddy of mine who is a part of uh, Restored Uptown. Restored Uptown is the church that sent my wife and I up here to help plant this church. And I was really happy to get a phone call from him because I hadn't talked to him for a while. He was part of our gospel community down there, and I was really amped to hear from him. And he told me the reason that he called was that his family, uh, he's got a, a, a wife and he's got four kids. He's got four girls under six. Yeah. They've gone through some hard times, uh, some challenges, some ups and downs. His family started writing names of their friends on popsicle sticks, and then every morning they'd grab one, and whoever they grabbed, they'd pray for. So that day, my buddy's three-year-old pulls out the burger popsicle stick, which is ours, and so they spent time praying for, for my family, for our family, and so he called just to tell us that they were praying for us and to check in with us. And I was struggling that week, and his call was timely, and it made me feel pretty loved. 
But here's the thing. The more I think about it, the more overjoyed I am just to see his family grow in love for Jesus and for his family, for the church. This family has been through so much heartache and suffering. I can't get into it um, all, but they've had a really hard time. And yet, in the midst of it, they're cultivating this deep love for Jesus and for his people and taking intentional steps to work that out in their daily life. So what I loved most wasn't the prayer. It was the fruit, the fruit of their love for Jesus and for us. And I think something similar is kind of happening here in this letter with Paul. He's grateful for the gift he received, but more than anything, he's focused on the fruit in the lives of other people. So let me ask a question. When life is hard... Do you see the fruit in other people's lives? Are you able to see and appreciate the work God is doing in and through his people? Or do you hold on to hurts and un- unmet needs? What do you prefer? What do you want? Do you want to hold on to stuff? Or do you want to focus on what he's doing in people's lives, like Paul is doing here? Calling out the good fruit. And when necessary, we see this in other parts of the letter, Paul Need, he shares honestly, humbly, and gently the things in other people that don't reflect what Jesus is like. So that doesn't mean we cover over everything that's not Jesus-like. It means that we're grateful for everything that is, and we gently move towards people when there's something that doesn't look like Jesus. Does that make sense? Do you want that? I got good news for you. The same Jesus that Paul called on, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's the same today. He's here for you. If you want him, he can help you in the midst of your suffering and your pain. So Paul looks for evidences of, he doesn't look for his circumstances to change. He's looking for evidences of grace in people's lives. The third thing, real quick, Paul delights when he sees that fruit in other people's lives. He delights in it. Verse 10, verse 10, the first half says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly because once again you renewed your care. I rejoiced. It was a cause for rejoicing. Did you know that you have permission to get amped on what Jesus is doing in other people's lives? You have permission. It's actually biblical. It's actually biblical to do that. You and I, we as a community, can rejoice over all the ways Jesus is transforming this community and this church, whether it's big things or small things. Any act of kindness, any act of generosity, any practical service, any act of forgiveness, any mercy shown, any time spent, any truth spoken in love, anything that flows out of a love for Jesus and a gratitude for his grace, like we can celebrate that reality in the midst of suffering even because that's what Paul did. Here's the thing that Paul remembered. We are, by nature, alienated from God. And it's only by his reckless love and pursuit that we have life. So anything that we do that isn't completely selfish, it's worth celebrating. Because it's only through Jesus that we can even begin to live this kind of life. I hope this is making, is this appealing to you guys? Isn't this a better way to move forward through suffering? Joy, gratitude, grace. But how is this kind of life possible? I mean, after all, we tend to turn inward as we suffer and either avoid the hard stuff or hold on to it. So real quick, let's talk about the disciples' hope during suffering. This is kind of like my second point. Disciples' hope during suffering. We talked about the heart, now we're looking at the hope. Philippians 4.13 says, 
I can, I'm able to do all things through him who strengthens me. I'm able to do all things through him who strengthens me. This verse is not about scoring touchdowns, <laughs> crushing home runs, or crushing it in life. This is not what this verse is about. It's about how we find a way forward through our suffering. So I want to highlight something. Notice that Paul's not placing his hope in people to meet his needs. He goes to God for strength. Not looking to circumstances changing, not looking to people. He goes to God. He's not looking for another rescuer. He has one. His name is Jesus. Some of you already know this. My wife, Heather, is pregnant with a girl, a little baby girl. This has been an incredible gift. If I'm completely honest, it's also been an incredible burden. <laughs> Heather gets really sick during pregnancy, and this time has been no different. Uh, the situation, though, is very different because we now have two toddlers. We have two kids under five, one of which is still not potty trained. And while she's sick, everything smells ten times more intense than normal. So imagine changing a diaper or opening the fridge. Even the freezer has a smell, which I didn't know. The trips to the fridge have just become highlight reels. So, but if I'm honest, I've felt like dominated by the demands of this season. Juggling a busy work season and a completely new set of demands at home has left me too often frustrated, upset, and sometimes just mad. And a couple weeks ago, I hit a low point just after a difficult parenting situation that I didn't handle well. And I felt like just so discouraged, so defeated, and I just wanted someone to understand what this is like. I was just crying out, like someone needs to understand this, what this is like. And I wanted Heather to be that person. But then I realized she can't be all of that for me. Even though she understood that better than anybody, I needed to know my dad, my father in heaven, saw what this has been like and understood my struggle, and that he was with me. So one morning, I just told God, this season hurts, I need you. It was not eloquent, it wasn't long, it was not spiritual, but it was honest. And like the best dad slash coach blend together, like he listened and responded in a way that was custom fit for me. He was like dad and Coach Taylor from Friday Night Lights, like blended together. <laughs> and I felt like he reminded me of, you guys have been here with, with us, I love Back to the Future. I felt like he reminded me of Back to the Future and if you've never seen the movie, there's a kid from 1985 whose name is Marty McFly, Michael J. Fox. He gets dropped into 1955 on accident. And so one day life is normal. The next day life is completely different. And he finds himself in this new world that he's completely unprepared for. And that is exactly how I felt in the pregnancy. And God spoke to me through that movie that I love the most to show me, I understand what you're going through. I know what this is like. And then I felt like he pressed a little more, and he said, what did Marty do when he got to 1955? Well, if you've never seen the movie, he starts looking for the only person who can help him, Doc Brown, who was alive in 1955, who made up the time machine, and I can't get into all the nerdy details, but <laughs> Marty and Doc, they forged this close, deep friendship as they got Marty through this really hard time in his life. And I felt God saying, like, I see and I hear you. I know what you're going through. You long to be understood, and I understand you better than anyone can. Come to me always, and your, our relationship will go deep, deeper than you can ever imagine. He wants to be my Doc Brown. <laughs> Maybe for you, it doesn't, you're like, I don't like sci-fi, sci-fi stupid. Whatever it is for you, I'm sure you can, you can relate. 
So just having like a dad or a coach just like meet you right where you're at and say, I know where you're at. This is not the end for you. You're not cast off. You're not discarded. You have an important role to play. And I'm going to get you through this. We're going to get through this together. And after that happened, I just felt this sense of like self-sufficiency. Not in myself, but in him. That's really hard to describe. The only way I can describe it is like in that moment, I just didn't feel the need to be validated anymore by someone else. I didn't need anyone to affirm me because I saw God affirms me and he validates me. So I felt freed up to just focus on my wife and what my kids needed and not think about me so much. I think Paul is describing something similar. I don't know. We weren't there in the prison cell with Paul, but I think he's being affirmed, known, loved. When we're not, when we don't feel affirmed in our identity, when we don't feel loved, that's when we go into avoiding or holding on to pain. But if we know Jesus is with us, that he's for us, we don't need to hold on to anything. So I want to call the band back up. I just want to ask a question. Like, If God supplies us with this kind of strength and gives us the resources to cope with hardship, is there anything that we can't face if we have him? There's nothing we can't face. Nothing. I want to read a quick story that I feel like summarizes this well for me. This is a story about suffering, physical suffering, about someone who I think imperfectly but honestly sought Jesus. This is out of a book called Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering by Tim Keller. If, you've never, if you're going through a hard season, this is a great book. This is the story by Gloria. She said, Most of my life has been without tumultuous events. Growing up in a Christian family, I learned my first prayer from my maternal grandmother. By God's grace, uh, Jesus saved me at 16 and I was baptized that same year. And I've been blessed with a fine education, a consistent career, opportunities to travel the world in good health. At age 67, I planned to retire. In August 2013, my goal was to enjoy many spiritual activities that I couldn't while working. However, my retirement plans did not include the lung cancer found in a CT scan. Further tests confirmed tumors in both lungs and metastases in my brain and lymph nodes. My final diagnosis is gene mutation lung cancer for non-smokers. So she was scheduled with, uh, to go into chemo with no expectation of a cure or eradication. Where has God been during this dark episode? First, he was with me in the chance detection of cancer since I had no symptoms. Second, he has strengthened my faith in his plans for me without fear. Lung cancer is a silent invader. It attacks without warning through physical damage, but also in the fear of an unexpectedly short life. But Jesus, the healing shepherd, granted me a quiet peace through his gracious love. Throughout, I've clung to, my, to the prayer my grandmother taught me. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for food and drink, for peace and joy. Thy will be done. I had no more need to ask, why me? And why now? I prayed not for the miracle of healing, but to keep my faith in Jesus as sovereign Lord. I also submitted to his power not only to grant miraculous recovery from illness, but as the Son of God to give eternal life. I knew Jesus would carry me through the valleys I was about to enter. Now, the initial chemo led to a total shrinkage of the brain tumors early on, and so she started to get an expectation that the rest of the cancer would have the same, that the chemo would affect the rest of the cancer similarly. But after nine months of additional treatment, there was no sign of shrinkage 
in the tumors in my lungs. Containment is now the strategy. Waiting for the results of a CT scan every three months will become my new normal. However, instead of seeing the tumor stability as good news, I began to feel defeated, and I blamed myself for not requesting a more aggressive treatment. I became discouraged, and I could not feel Jesus' peace in my daily quiet time. What I experienced was not physical pain, but misery in the soul. But once again, God reached out to me with the invitation from Proverbs 3.5, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not into your own understanding. That trust in Jesus required a further, total, and absolute surrender to his will. Because of God's profound mercy, I began to see my submission in terms of a greater participation with Christ in his sufferings on the cross and his absolute submission of himself to the Most High. I continued to pray for God's grace to accept and guide my surrendering. Now I have found freedom in anchoring my days and nights with Jesus' spirit. To live one day at a time without fretting over tomorrow frees me and soothes my suffering. With renewed trust in Jesus comes renewed love, hope, and faith. My focus turns from my pain to his love. I have discovered a new treasure. The gift of pain and the gift is the gift of God himself. In the end, he alone is truly my delight and comfort. I have learned the meaning of Psalm 119.71, which says, It was good for me to be afflicted so that I might learn your decrees. Psalm 27.4 says, Will now guide my journey till the end. One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of God forever, all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in the temple. Isn't that amazing? This is a regular disciple who struggled, who admits that she started putting her hope in her circumstances. But there was this reality of seeing Jesus for who he really is through the pain, through the suffering, through the heartache. Now her life, will look, the rest of her life, however long it is, will look so different than it would have otherwise because she can do all things through Christ who strengthens her. And so can you and so can I. So can we as a community. So I'm going to ask you to stand up if you're able to. We're going to go ahead and sing maybe for the next 10, 12 minutes, 10 to 15 minutes. I just want to ask a question as we head into this time. I just want to ask, like, what are you facing that feels big in your life right now? What has you feeling weak? What hardship awaits you tomorrow, this week, this month, this year? And I want to kind of encourage you, like, you don't have to avoid it. You also don't need to hold on to it either. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. Bring him whatever it is you're facing. Ask him to strengthen you. Ask him to turn you outward so you don't focus on circumstances, but instead focus on him and his plan to make everything new and restore this broken creation one day. One person at a time, starting with you, until it works its way out to the people around you. So let's sing. I'll be back up here 10 to 15 minutes to close this out.